So far this morning, uh, we have seen that in accordance with God's divine will, there are numerous nations or actors that will soon find themselves arrayed in battle against the nation of Israel. We know, too, the identities of the nations and much about the nature of the common conflict. As diligent Bible students aware of the prophetic times and the world in which we live in, what should we be watching? What should we be looking for? And what should we take comfort in? The next bit of an hour, or three quarters thereof, uh, will hopefully be dedicated to answering these questions by examining a fraction of the current events and situations going on in the world regarding three or four key nations that can help us diligently watch and wait for the Lord's return. Uh, as a forewarning, we may take a couple short detail, uh, detours on the way from current events as we go through this. Uh, please turn to Isaiah 43, 8-12. Isaiah 43, 8-12. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this, and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witness, that they may be justified, or let them hear, and say, It is truth. Ye are my witness, saith the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Even I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared, and have saved, and have showed, when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witness, saith the Lord, that I am God. First and foremost, the Jewish people should command our utmost attention. The plight of the Jewish people has been observed, been observed for centuries by all those interested in the coming kingdom of God. Thomas Newton, in 1754, wrote, They who deny that you will be restored and reestablished in your ancient inheritance may better deny that you are dispersed, for as certainly as the prophecies of your dispersion and preservation have been verified, so shall the numerous prophecies of your restoration be realized and fulfilled. In 1840, there was a letter to the editor of the Times of London that stated, the actual feasibility of the return of the Jews is no longer a paradox. The time give it proof. That theory of the restoration of the Jewish kingdom, which a few years ago was laughed at as the fantasy of insane enthusiasm, is now calculated on as a most practical achievement of diplomacy. And just a few years later, Brother Thomas wrote in 1884, there, then, there is then a partial and primary restoration of Jews before the manifestation of Christ, which is to serve as the nucleus or basis of future operations in the restoration of the rest of the tribes after he has appeared in the kingdom. The pre-adventual colonization of Palestine will be on purely political principles and the Jewish colonists will return in unbelief of the Messiahship of Jesus and of the truth that is in him. 
They will immigrate thither as agriculturalists and traders in the hope of ultimately establishing their commonwealth under the efficient protection of the British power. Isaiah 66.8 says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such thing? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? We, of course, now live in the days of fulfilled prophecy. In, 18, in 1948, a nation was born in a day. It goes without saying, as we watch the policies and politics of Israel, they should command our greatest attention. More importantly, the nation of Israel should be our, one of our greatest sources of comfort. In May 1988, in the Christadelphian Advocate, Brother Farah wrote this. For those who were 20 years old and upwards in 1948, the sudden birth of the nation of Israel was tantamount to a direct angelic visitation. The reason for this is that for 100 years prior to 1948, believers looked for the return of the Jews of the world to Palestine in direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, at last, the veracity and truth of the Bible was vindicated for all to see. Not only is the establishment of the State of Israel a public witness to the, to the authenticity of the Word of God, but also is the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. We have lived to see the fig tree shoot forth. It has put forth leaves and become ranked with the nations of the earth politically, militarily, and economically. Scarcely a day goes by without Israel being in the forefront of the news. Now, according to demographers, two new generations have come into existence. Generation X, uh, those individuals born between 1965 and 1980, and now Generation Y, those born after 1980, who have never known of a time when the nation of Israel did not exist. The challenge for us is not to let something that is the norm for so many become viewed as commonplace and unexceptional. Nations and peoples have come and gone throughout the course of world history. But no nation was promised to come, was established, then promised to be scattered, then scattered, and then promised to be restored and actually restored in front of the world. The existence of the nation of Israel is the most overt display of God's hand we will see until his son returns to this earth the importance of which to ourselves and our children we can never let be diminished. All those who have existed at a time, me included, when, to have never known that Israel did not exist as a nation. While Israel serves as a source of comfort, we also watch it for actions and policies that indicate world events are aligning in accordance with the prophetic expectations. If we were to review the recent military and political history of Israel, we would see the following. A history mis mixed with war, peace efforts, and what can be honestly considered confusing national policies. And I think the best example of this difficulty is in the Annapolis Agreement of November 2007. Annapolis Agreement 2007 stated that 
basically it says this. In the furtherance of the goal of two states, Israel and Palestine, living side by side, peace and security, we agree to immediately launch good faith bilateral negotiations in order to conclude a peace treaty, so forth and so on. The idea of a two-state goal. Now, contrast this statement by the recent words of the current foreign minister of Israel, and this is a CNN.com article under the heading, Israeli Foreign Minister Spurns Annapolis Peace Process. The second paragraph is the key, and basically it says, or he states, the Annapolis Agreement is not binding. To explain how one nation can have such a strong and dramatic shift in policy, we're going to do a first detour this morning uh, into what is essentially a brief civics lesson. Uh, given that most Americans don't understand how our own government operates, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that a portion of us don't understand how the Israeli government actually operates either. So, what follows is a five-minute introduction, or longer, with the hope that will help us better be, be better followers of the news regarding Israel. So, the nation of Israel is a democratic republic with a parliamentary system of government. It's headed by a prime minister and it involves numerous political parties, <coughs> representing a very wide range of political ideologies. The legislative body, uh, something I'm sure we've all heard about, is the Knesset. It's called the, it's the legislative body, it's also called the assembly. And opposed to our two-house legislative body, the Israeli system is unicameral. It only has one house, and elections are held every five years. Now, by its design, the Knesset is set up for a lot of volatility. The 120 seats in the Knesset are determined proportionality of votes. So if a party only gets 5% of the vote in the general election, they still get six seats in the Knesset. Now, the upshot of this way of allocating seat is that no single party has ever been able to attain an absolute majority in the Knesset. To give you an idea how far away anyone is from getting to that right now, the two largest parties in the last election got 28 and 27 seats, respectively. And the two largest parties who are completely diametrically opposed, and they don't even get to half. So that is how much variation exists within this government. Therefore, governments are always coalitions of different parties. This has dramatic importance and uh, impact on Israeli policy, and I'll talk a little bit about it in a second. So adding to this volunteer is the fact that the Knesset, if they want to vote no confidence in the government, they can do so, and they abolish the whole thing, and they try again, and hold new elections. So we'll talk about the Knesset more in a second. The president is the head of state, and that is primarily a ceremonial position. Uh, for example, uh, the president cannot veto legislation, as the president of this country can the current president is Shimon Peres. He was elected in 2007. He is a Nobel Peace Prize winner for his role in the Oslo Accords of 1994, which we'll talk more about in a second. And uh, according to his BBC biography, he is a supporter of seeking peace with the Palestinians. <coughs> now, the prime minister is the head of government and is such the principal political actor in the country. And this is something that's difficult for, you know, in translating... American-style politics to foreign politics. You know, the U.S. president is both the head of government and the head of state. 
Many other countries separate out those two positions. So when a new government is formed, the president delegates the job of establishing that government to one of its members in the Knesset. And this is very commonly done in parliamentary forms of systems, uh, government systems. And on paper, this exercise is only only goes on paper. This action is exercised after the president does some reflection, consults with members of the Knesset, and does what is his best choice. But in practicality, he always has to, or she, has to pick the person with the party with the most votes, because that's the only way anything's going to go. Um, <clears throat> the party leader is granted 21 days to form a coalition, presented to the Knesset, and announces general policy outlines. And uh, once he gains the Knesset's vote of confidence, we have a government, the prime minister. So the prime minister is not elected directly by the individuals. It's the leader of the party. If that attempt fails, the president tries another candidate and they start the whole process again. Now, in theory, the prime minister then turns around and appoints cabinet ministers, like the uh, current prime minister, uh, the current uh, foreign minister that we read said who dismissed the Annapolis peace process. However, because of the coalition nature of government, prime ministers basically then have to accept into the leadership of the cabinet whatever members of the parties they form the coalitions with. Coalitions with. So very rarely can a prime minister say, yeah, I really don't want that person in my cabinet. No, if you want that party's votes, you get to take that person along with you. So the current prime minister is Benjamin Netanyahu, and he's a member of the Likud party. And to use a really general term, the Likud party is a more conservative party. It is opposed to seceding land to any of the Palestinians, and actually it's nationalist in orientation. And the Encyclopedia Britannica, under its entry, states that earlier this decade it adopted a policy of opposing the establishment of a Palestinian state under any conditions. Netanyahu is a familiar figure. He's been prime minister before and has had several cabinet positions. So let's kind of put these things together. Quickly looking at the Knesset, you can see these are the current allocation of seats in the Knesset. We have a wide variety. There are 12 parties that actually have members seated. And the two largest ones we mentioned only have 23 and 22% of the vote, respectively. Seven parties only have five representatives or less. And I'd really like to tell you who is conservative or who is liberal. But those kind of broad categories don't always work so well in describing specific policies. For example, within the group of parties that you would want to call conservative, you have a variety of ideas about how to deal with the Palestinians. Anything from maintaining the status quo to actually um, you know, letting some land go but keeping others, or even those that would say, just forget about it and keep expanding all we can. Those marked with an asterisk are those that are listed against seceding any land whatsoever, or they even advocate expanding <coughs> settlements. But keep in mind, it's a really, really gross simplification. There's a lot more subtlety than that. But if you take a look, what you can see really quickly is that the Likud party can round up 60 votes if necessary, so that's why they're in power. So the prime minister is leading conservative, as is the legislature, but the pr current president uh, would lean the opposite direction. So lastly, how do the Palestinians fit into all this? Well, in 1993, the Israel and the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, signed what is commonly known as the Oslo Accords, that we mentioned earlier. And the image from that series of events that's probably most familiar to us is the very uncomfortable handshake uh, then Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin gave Yasser Arafat in front of Bill Clinton. 
And what the results of this agreement was basically that Israel would secede responsibility for the Palestinian population for this PLO, but re retain strategic, strategic control of Gaza, Jericho, and, what, and the remainder of the area that's known as the West Bank. Therefore, running kind of in parallel to the Israeli government is you have this Palestinian authority that is supposed to be taking care of the Palestinians. However, uh, I think we all know how this has ended up currently. Um, Hamas, a terrorist organization, won their democratic elections. Uh, war has ensued over that. Uh, Israel effectively has abandoned the Gaza Strip and just walked off from it. And the non-Hamas half of the Palestinian Authority is essentially a corrupt and ineffectual government operating the other hand. So in sum, we know that Israel has a government that is right now what could be considered less interested in seceding land to um, any Palestinians for the establishment of a Palestinian state, but she is still surrounded by enemies around about. Next, we're going to turn our attention to the principal actors in the Gogian Confederacy. But first, we're going to do another detour through uh, not-so-current events. In May 330, uh, 330 AD, Constantine officially transferred the capital of the Roman Empire to the city of Constantinople. Constantinople, the new or second Rome, stood in, until 1453 when it fell to the Ottoman Turks. In 1472, the ruler of Russia adopts the title of Tsar, which is equivalent to that of Emperor. In the, 17, in the 1470s, I'm sorry, he also adopted the two-headed Roman eagle as his coat of arms. And then in 1511, a monk named Philotheus wrote Basil II, or Basil III, Tsar of Russia, and I'm going to apologize for language, he wrote this document that has been widely cited in Russian history. The old church of Rome fell because of the impiety of the Apollonian heresy. The church of the second Rome, Constantinople, was smitten under the battle axes of the Turks. But this present church of the third, new Rome, of thy sovereign empire, the holy Catholic apostolic church, shines in the whole universe more resplendent than the sun. And let it be known to thy lordship, O pious Tsar, that all the empires of the Orthodox Christian faith have converged into thine one empire. Thou art so emperor of all the Christians in the whole universe. For two Romes have fallen, and a third stands, and a fourth shall never be. For thy Christian empire shall not devolve upon any others. From this point on, we have Russia referring to herself as the third Rome. And turning to the parallel events in European history, in 476, the city of Rome fell to Germanic invaders. And for the next few centuries, the Pope in Rome still applied, still, still, still appealed to the emperors in Constantinople for help. However, during the Lombard invasion of late 17, 750s, the Pope made an epoch-turning appeal to the West. He sought the assistance of the Frankish king Pepin III, also Pepin the Short, who invaded Italy and defeated the Lombard king. In 756, Pepin bestowed on the papacy the territories belonging to the former ruler and what was left of the Western Empire. Thus was born the close alliance between the papacy and the Frankish or French monarchy. 
In 18, in 800 AD, the Pope crowned Charlemagne Augustus and Emperor, which were Roman titles. Over the next centuries, this Frankish Italian Empire shifted over the centuries, but from about 1000 AD until 1806, it was called the Holy Roman Empire, and it incorporated lands of Germany, Austria, Belgium, Northern Italy, and parts of France. Uh, when it fell in 1806, it was primarily a Germanic kingdom made up of mostly of, well, both of religious and secular states. All of which prompted, uh, this is Voltaire's infamous quip, that it was neither holy Roman nor an empire. But what it was, in fact, was the lands of Gomer. So with the Gogian Confederacy, we see Rome in all its firm forms. First, second, third, east, west, all aligned against Israel. As the inheritor of the Roman Empire, we watch for signs of aggression from Russia as indicators of an intention to take a spoil, to take a prey, or the very least, those that might be precursors to those events as they move towards the south and towards Israel. And we don't have to look back far for those indicators. When Vladimir Putin became president in 2000, Russia's military machine was enfeebled. Since then, there has been a quadrupling of the defense budget, Russia resumed its Cold War practice of flying long-range bombers close to UK and US airspace. Russian Northern Fleet warships are patrolling the Arctic Ocean for the first time since the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. He waged a brutal war against the state of Chechnya. And lastly, as the world's second largest arms supplier, Russia also exerts influence by selling missiles and anti-aircraft systems worldwide. In 2007, Time Magazine wrote, It has doubtless not escaped the Kremlin's attention that the West, including the U.S., has remained largely silent. The result is a dangerous presumption that Russia can do what it wishes, especially in its own geopolitical backyard. Last summer, I think we all know, these presumptions became reality. Russian tanks moved into the south of Ossetia region of the former Soviet Union member, the now independent state of Georgia. And what was the response from the United States, Great Britain, Canada? Some words. That was about it. Time magazine observed, the conflict demonstrated just how far a resurgent Russia will go to advance its interests. Nearly 20 years ago, when the Soviet Union collapsed, many in the West thought a weakened Russia would be a friendly one and would pose no threats to its former satellites. Instead, awash with profits from natural resources, Russia has become a new economic power. Prime Minister Vladimir Putin, who continues to run Russia through his hand-picked successor, Dmitry Medved, invested heavily to transform Russia's Soviet-area military machine into a more modern fighting machine. The invasion of Georgia demonstrates that Moscow is ready to assert its primacy in the neighborhood and stand up to Washington. The bear is out of hibernation. Its neighbors can no longer sleep easy. Already, those nations listed in the Gogian Confederacy are currently aligning with each other. We'll let this get started. So, how does the United Nations manage to put their first speaker at an international conference on racism? A, how do they manage to put their first speaker as a avowed Holocaust denier? That's what they managed to do. Anyway, 
Um, while Mr. Uh, Ahmadinejad is a source of disgust, he's mostly just a kind of spectacle. Real power and authority in Iran rests solely with the Supreme Leader. Russia and Iran have signed a treaty in 2001 that focuses on the cooperation in the military technical sphere. That's a quote. Uh, what we do have at least here is the diplomats when he mentions, uh, uh, I'm sure most of you all saw this, when he at least starts to mention Israel as being um, an atrocity, they get up and walk out, most of the Europeans. Uh, Russia has continually defended Iran's nuclear program only as peaceful. Russia supplies Iran with anti-aircraft missiles, conventional arms, and nuclear material for its reactors. Militarily, Iran continues to strengthen the three pillars of its strategic deference, surface-to-air missiles, long-range rockets and aircrafts for retaliation, naval forces to disrupt maritime traffic through key waterways, and unconventional armed forces and surrogates to conduct worldwide lethal operations. Iran's provision of training weapons and money to Hamas has, since 2006, uh, since the 2006 Palestinian elections has bolstered the group's ability to strike Israel and oppose their counterpart uh, Palestinian Authority government. <coughs> Russia and Turkey have staged joint military movers as well. And this is speaking of Turkey from a Jerusalem Post article in August 11, 2008. Russia's invasion of Georgia should serve as proof that there are some regimes that simply cannot be considered strategic allies of the West. And as the U.S. and NATO try to assess the wreckage of their attempt to forge a post-Soviet alliance with Russia, dic Russian dictator Vladimir Putin, another erstwhile ally is showing that it too cannot be trusted. Turkey has expanded trade with Iran. Turkey has defended Iran's nuclear program. Turkey has also been favorable to Hamas and other nation, other enemies of Israel. From Time Magazine, April 16th, just this year. Russia has crafted its role by using its two most valuable assets, vast energy resources and mountains of military hardware, to cut a series of clever deals. In 2006, for example, then-President Vladimir Putin flew a delegation of oil, gas, and defense executives to Algeria, just further west of Libya in North Africa. Putin negotiated to sell $7.5 billion worth of combat jets, missiles, and tanks to the government, while Russian energy giants Gazprom and Luke Oil secured key oil and gas concessions in the North African nation. Putin offered an extra sweetener. He wrote off Algeria's near $5 billion Soviet area debt. Then there was the deal Putin cut with Libya just before he stepped down from the presidency to become prime minister. That one involved an agreement to sell 2.5 billion worth of arms while canceling Libya's $4 billion Soviet debt. Now, this should not surprise us, but it's still saddening. The Jerusalem Post and Haaretz both reported on a recent report from the European Jewish Congress delivered to the European Union that stated the number of anti-Semitic incidents in Europe in the first three months of this year exceeds the total number of such occurrences during all of last year. They're on pace to do four times as much. 
Molotov cocktails have been thrown into synagogues in Finland. Jewish cemeteries in Sweden and Norway have been vandalized. Cartoons likening the Star of David to the Nazi swastika have become commonplace in Scandinavia. Increases in anti-Semitic incidences have been reported in Holland, Belgium, France, and Britain. Let's turn our attention to our country as one of the young lions in support of Israel. According to a Gallup poll of U.S. adults, very recent, nearly 60% view Israel favorably. And the same Gallup poll for the past three years has found similar results, and these percentages are pretty close to that what is reported in other popular polls. However, could this change soon? You know, just last month, the president made, it, made clear outreaches to those who have not been friendly to Israel. As this front page New York Times headline states, the president began a formal outreach to the Muslim world. And while that is an interesting development, it was the column just to the right of that article that really caught my attention. It's titled, Military Budget Reflects a U Shift in U.S. Strategy. Defense Secretary Robert M. Gates announced a major reshaping of the Pentagon budget on Monday with deep cuts in many traditional weapon systems but billions of dollars for others along with more troops and new technology to fight the insurgencies in Iraq and Afghanistan. The decisions are expected to set up a vigorous round of lobbying over priorities embroidered into the Defense Department's half trillion dollars of annual spending. They represent the first broad rethinking of American military strategy under the Obama administration which plans to shift more money to counterterrorism in Iraq and Afghanistan while spending less on preparations for conventional warfare against large nations like China and Russia. But given the opportunity or occasion to face Russian aggression, we have already noted that the U.S. made no real response. The U.S. is moving away from the capability to engage in that type of war. To that we can add this nation is mired in, in an unpopular war on two fronts. World authority or cloud is falling due to actions of torture and the fact that the substantial, if not the bulk, of the world's current financial problems can be traced back to practices in the U.S. financial system. Economically, the country is in unbelievable debt and is bordered to the south by a nation that commands a lot of attention due to its recent eruption of violence and even more uh, recent outbreak of disease. When Gog of the land of Magog, the Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal says, I will go up to the land of all unwalled villages, I will go to them that are at rest, they'll let you swiftly, all of them dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and take a prey. Do we see that the nations, particularly this one we live in, will not have the will or the, even the ability to stand against him? On Ezekiel 38.13, where Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, and the young lions thereof, say, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? The Companion Bible notes, this is their note from the margin, that these are the names of those that protest. And I find that word really appropriate, because that protest may not be forceful, loud, or even very enthusiastic. Now, I can't claim this is a comprehensive review of current events.
as we have only barely touched on maybe two or three subjects and not even examined British policies, really the whole Muslim world, we can also go into actions of the Pope, the Pope, like his reinstating Holocaust deniers in the key positions in Europe. Or even the influence of ecumenical and apostate movements in this country and Europe on popular perceptions and attitudes that eventually become reflected in national policies and politics. We'll have to look, leave that for another time and conclude this look at Latter-day Prophecy with what is possibly the most ominous of all the Latter-day Prophecies. And really a couple months ago I had a conversation with a brother who referred to, referred to this verse when we, that we're about to read. And it was after that conversation that I knew I wanted to talk about this today. Please turn to Luke 18, 8. This is the second sentence in the verse. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Consistent service to God and preservation of the truth is something with which mankind has struggled. We have not done well with it in our history. Turn to Joshua, the 24th chapter, please. Joshua 24, verse 31. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. Now, this has always been a really haunting passage for me because we all know exactly what happens next. You know, skip forward a couple pages in your Bible to Judges, the second chapter. Judges 2, starting at verse 10. Speaking of the same folks. And also all that generation were gathered into their fathers, and there was another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord their God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord, Lord God, the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. This, this, of course, repeated itself. After the apostles had fallen asleep, and after that second generation of believers that had been given the Holy Spirit, like Timothy and Titus had gone, what was the state of the ecclesia? You know, by 96 AD, they were already losing their first love. By 185 AD, with the opening of the second seal and the period of the Pergamonian ecclesia, the doctrine of Balaam was already in place. And we know it was very short order for, the, for apostasy and heresy to become the norms of so-called so Christianity. 
And what do we see today? Errors, false, false doctrines, acceptance of immoral practices have divided and fragmented our community. The spirit of ecumenicalism and a misguided notion that doctrinal differences are of minimal importance have ruined and are ruining ecclesias and families. The practices, forms, goals, or any attribute of the so-called Christian churches of this world are nothing to be respected, modeled, emulated, but do we see those pressures being exerted on the household? Brothers and sisters, we face trouble from without, from within, and as always, from ourselves. These errors have separated both the old and the young alike. Now, to our Lord's question, shall I find faith? Was he referencing the general falling away that we have seen since the close of the first century? So that in every subsequent age, there have only been a handful who have valued God's truth. Or is it something more? Is it something that we can apply more directly to ourselves? You know, personally, I really think he was talking about the grand scale. That's how I've always viewed it. But this talk with this brother you know, made me reconsider those things. So I think the answer to his question was yes, he will. It will just be among the very few. But there is a power and there is a sense of urgency in those words spoken nearly 2,000 years ago if we apply them directly to ourselves. With this challenge, how will we respond? When Moses ascended the mount and was absent, just, just 40 days, how did the people respond? Gross immorality and idolatry. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Christ had left the apostles to pray, what did they do? They, they fell asleep. What are we to do? Our Lord is absent. What are we to do? Please turn back to Luke 18.1 because Jesus says what is the point of this parable in which these words occur. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. The point of this parable, where he ends with this question, is that we are to pray and not to lose heart. We pray for the spiritual well-being and strength of ourselves, for our brethren, for our ecclesias, and that more of the world may more, and that more of the world may come to the knowledge of the truth, and also, very importantly, for the soon return of our Savior. Next, in order not to lose heart, prayer helps. But we also have to defend the truth that has been delivered to us. Near every Sunday, or nearly every Sunday, Depending on uh, nearly every Sunday, we read Paul's opening words to the Corinthians for the memorial service. Please turn just 
begin there. First Corinthians 11, 23. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Is Paul saying this is a simple repetition? Is he just saying, I'm repeating to you what I was told? No. The phrase means entrusting and protecting. It is not simple repetition. He is handing over something that is to be guarded and defended. Contrast that with the very similar wording in Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, verses 9 through 13. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of seven years, the solemnity of the year of release, and the Feast of Tabernacles, when all of Israel has come to appear before the Lord thy God, in the place which he shall choose. Thou shalt read this law before all the Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates, that they may hear, that they may learn, and that they may fear the Lord your God, and observe to do all the words of this law. And that their children, which have not known anything, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land where you go over Jordan to possess it. Clearly we have the idea of protecting, teaching, defending, and passing on. Not only to another generation if it is to arise, but to those strangers who have not yet come to the knowledge of the glory of God. We have been given a great gift, a pearl of great price. We are responsible for keeping it. Lastly, the bulk of the world is going to be surprised by the events to come. Our prayer is that we will not be. That is not where it should end, however. We must take that knowledge and conviction that the unfolding events before us are the preamble to the great and ultimate purpose of God for this world. We must take our knowledge of the surety of the coming kingdom to motivate our service to God, to motivate the strengthening of our ecclesias and our fellow brethren and sisters, and to prompt us to let our light so shine before men that they may glorify God as well. And in conclusion of our time, I'd like to read from Matthew. 24th chapter. <coughs> Starting at verse 42. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good men of the house had known that, known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched, and would have not suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, 
For at such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who, who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he come, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the directly, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and that hour that he is not aware, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you all.